Hi, welcome to Minds Behind Maps. I'm Maxim Letterman. This is the latest episode in this experiment where I want to sit down with people who are creating and using anything geospatial to try to understand more about the field and the people in it. My guest today is Dan Hammer, maybe mostly known for having co-founded and built the first few versions of Global Forest Watch. Most recently, he founded Earthrise Media. I think the best explanation of what they do comes from the first line you read on their website. Data scientists, designers, and storytellers with a unique approach to addressing global environmental change. Dan is one of those people that has a really impressive resume. He's worked as a senior policy advisor in the office of the chief technology officer within the Obama White House, and is a senior advisor and climate fellow at X, the Moonshot Factory. During this conversation, Dan talks about how Global Forest Watch got started, but also what led it to be a project that still lives on today. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Dan was to understand more about how maps can be used as a medium and tool for storytelling. We talk about how Global Forest Watch empowered journalists to tell some of their stories in a way that no data scientist could. This conversation is a showcase of how to build a map, use all the data science and machine learning in the world, but all ultimately in the service of solving a problem and specifically telling a story through the data. The more I have these conversations through this podcast, the more I realize how powerful stories are and how people engage and connect with a good story. Data is incredible, but but at the end of the day, humans still like stories. And even if my data-oriented brain would like it otherwise, those are what people, and I include myself there, gravitate towards. I think understanding that is the first step to being able to use stories as just another tool to lead to action and impact. Dan is now working on Earthrise Media, building projects like Global Plastic Watch. We talk about that in the conversation, but I'm pretty sure you can already guess what that's about. We discuss the importance of design as a complementary and even as a necessary addition to data science. This is another one of those conversations that left me with a new idea that I hadn't been exposed to before and which I've witnessed popping up in my mind over and over again since we've recorded this episode. Towards the end of the conversation, we also touch on how space inspires people through human spaceflight, but also through Earth observation. Conversation takes a little bit of a turn, but it's one that I really much enjoy, and I hope you will too. As always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Max Lernemand, or follow news related to the podcast at Minds Behind Maps. All the links are in the show notes. In the meantime, here is my conversation with Dan Hammer. Hi, Dan. Uh, thanks a lot for being uh, on the podcast with me. Um, as you, you might know, I like to, to ask the, the same question uh, to every person that comes here um, and spends some time with me on the podcast. So I'd like to ask um, how you would uh, describe yourself. Well, I would describe myself as a data scientist uh, and uh, mainly because no one really knows what that means. So I can say it with <laughs> impunity. Um, uh, you know, my working definition of a data scientist is that it's, it's someone who pulls out patterns from uh, quantitative data and then uh, communicates them. So the identificate the practice of mm. identifying and communicating patterns from within data. And so it's pretty broad. I mean, there are data scientists everywhere. There's data scientists in uh, healthcare and advertising and, and now even policing and civic tech. Uh, and sort of my small corner is environmental data science. So working right. exclusively with environmental data. 
so why why is that why exclusively work with uh, environmental data i don't know i don't know <laughs> i just that's what i've been doing for since graduating you know but i mean in college so in, in college i started with uh, i was an economics and math major and i my freshman year took a course in environmental economics and that's okay. what i thought i wanted to do as sort of an academic forever after um, I got mm -hmm. to grad school and within the first year, I realized I didn't want to be an academic, um, didn't want to write papers. Right. And, um, and so have been working with environmental data since, I don't even know. I mean, I guess like 2004, just environment. Was there like something specific that, that made you pivot like towards that? Like saying you, you don't want to go to academia, but you still want to do that environmental, um, just working with environmental data because it's it's especially like 2002 i'm i mean i don't know i wasn't very tall back then first of all but i know right now there's a lot of people who come into that and, and say okay i want to work on environmental data i want to work on things related to climate change but i feel like i don't know in 2002 i don't know if that many people were also wanting to get into that so it, it sounds very still quite early stage and so I wonder if there's anything that, that made you want to go towards that. Yeah, you know, I, now that I think about it, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but um, <laughs> the for um, environment has always been sort of a steady beat and it was the expression of, of, of environment in, I don't know, academics or professional that, that has changed, like the way in which it was expressed. But like, I knew that, I knew I was going to work in environment for a long time. I, I grew up in DC and was a, a, competitive kayaker and so spent a lot okay. I remember my college admissions essay was around kayaking um, um, which means basically that I got into college because of legacy um, but I was a I was a competitive kayaker and and so you spent a lot of time on the river and it was so I was mainly interested in conservation uh, early on and I don't know when I really sort of picked up on climate in particular right. but you know, just sort of like an environment and I thought I was going to be an, uh, an economist because that's what my dad did he was a professor okay. of development economics at Princeton so I knew I wanted to do environment it was my own flavor on something that sort of fell into or already spoke the language because it was dinner table conversation um, <laughs> and um, and so yeah went was headed down environmental economics where you have to learn um, uh, how to deal with data or pull out these specific right. types of patterns within data. And in economics, unlike, you know, data science in general or you know, machine learning, it's really about finding causal relationships. So it's, it's not looking at broad correlations. It's looking for mm -hmm. like using a scalpel to find specific patterns to, you know, identify causality. And so um, uh, spent a lot of time on different ways to, uh, to to find those sort of causal relationships and the structure of maps gives you a lot of a chance to, to find those like natural experiments about how things change abruptly across borders for example right. or um, by, be it physical or political borders and so um, was using the tools of of um, statistics programming and, and math uh, even in, in college, and then really doubled down on it after college. Um, 
and uh, uh, but but environment has always been the case. Yeah. What what is those? Um, if if we go back a little bit in time, what were those? What were the tools that you were using back then? Actually, to 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 build a lot of that. Um, as I was saying just before we hopped to we we started the the show. I'm very new to this still relatively in it. Um, so, you know, my, uh, my time machine go back, goes back three years pretty much and anything before that, I don't really know. So I'm, I'm very curious, like what, what were the kind of tools that you were working back then? Uh, sorry, the tools you were working with back then. Um, and I'm guessing that also changed a lot over time. Yeah. That, so yes, that, that changed a lot. So I got out of college uh, and spent a year again, building and, and racing these canoes in the South Pacific, sort of a boondog one. I, but my first job right out, of right out of college after that year was working for an environmental economist at the Center for Global Development who wanted to understand the economic drivers of deforestation. So okay. how is deforestation related? You know, how did deforestation change with the change in interest rate or the price of palm oil or something like that? But we didn't have any information at a sort of a level of or at a resolution that was commensurate with economic decision making. You didn't have, you know, in economics speak, the left-hand side variable. Like when you right. regress Y on X, you didn't have the Y variable. You didn't have deforestation, um, again, at a resolution that was meaningful. And so we had started, my, my colleague and I, Robin Kraft, had started as research assistants just trying to assemble data on deforestation and, and found that the freely available Landsat data and MODIS data uh, could help us identify deforestation. And, and we were just focused on Indonesia at the time. Right. And so we started programming ways in which to pull out these sort of signals of uh, forced cover loss uh, from satellite imagery in Stata, which is sort of the preferred statistical package for economists. Okay. It is not meant to process satellite imagery. And so we, we went over to Meta, which is the underlying matrix language behind Stata. There was a, a researcher, David Rudman, that had written a lot of econometrics packages directly in Meta for Stata. And so we, we relied on him. Uh, and then I think we moved to R or Python. I can't remember, but if it was R, it was very brief. We went to Python uh, and AWS. And AWS, this was the time where you know, we could actually change the spot pricing of instances. Okay. Like we were using it so much alongside, I think it was Stanford Medical School. Like we could watch... It was endogenous pricing. Like the more we used it, the higher the price went. So okay. you know, it, was, it was sort of a fun way in which to set prices for the first time. It was early on, um, and then, and then um, started to work with uh, with a colleague and friend, an old paddling buddy, actually Sam Ritchie, who ultimately went to um, Twitter and Stripe, uh, and we started working with him in Closure and Hadoop. And so Hadoop was a way in which to manage like a, a large array of of servers in parallel, and Closure had this, um, this new framework or abstraction over Hadoop called Cascalog. Um, and so we chose Closure. And so the first versions of Global Forest Watch or Forma, which was forest monitoring for action, which was like the first data set in Global Forest Watch, um, was, was sort of released in, in Closure. I think that project's still up, like Forma-CLJ. So like the first uh, like wireframes of Global Forest Watch uh, are up there with sort of a mixed bag of people who had never been really trained in computer right. science, trying to do computer science and engineering um, because we needed to, not because we sort of set out to do that. Um, so it was a whole, it was like a whole tour through all sorts of languages until we settled on, on one. And now I don't even know what's written in. <laughs> um, 
so what's the what's the timeline around that? Well, so uh, Rob and I started to work on this in two thousand and nine. Okay. Uh, we went to it was a few years, uh, about two and a half years of uh, before it got absorbed into WRI, and then another year and a half before it was released, and um, in twenty fourteen, I think. Right, that's the date that I had in mind, like twenty fourteen. That that, from what I understood, it was a, a reboot of of the, um, of that project, and so yeah. I, I, I tried digging a little bit, but I'm, I'm very curious as to what really started that effort. Like, it sounds like now it's a, it's a, it's a pretty big thing. Um, but, you know, back then I'm, I'm very curious at least to, one of the things you said is like, you did it because you needed to and, and not because that's what you were set to do. So um, what was that need specifically? Uh, so, so you're right. Global Forest Watch was a thing way before this release. This was actually called Global Forest Watch 2.0. Mm -hmm. uh, before it was just, so first it was called Forma, then it was called Global Forest Watch 2.0 when it went into WRI, and then it was called, now, and then it was called just Global Forest Watch. Right. And I actually don't know very much about the history. I know that it was dormant by the time we got there in 2020, I don't know, when we started talking about this in two, with WRI in like 2010, 2011, it was, um, I don't know if they use, I think they use satellite imagery. I'm not totally sure about that, but I do okay. know that a lot of it was sort of assembling information about forests, uh, mainly I believe in North America from surveys and other, you know, shape files of, you know, ownership. Um, I don't know very much about it, but, but I do know that, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't refer to that project um, in sort of this reboot because it started out in, in the center of global development where we just needed information on where deforestation was happening. And so we could correlate it with economic and social variables to understand what was causing it. Was that still while you were um, working in academia? Uh, sort of, yeah. Um, okay, I right. went to grad school in environmental economics at Berkeley in 2011. Uh, and um, so sort of midway through this process, after we had a working prototype, I started graduate school and um, yeah, started in graduate school and was so in, this in, project starts. Um, I mean, you, you, you guys start working on it because you're trying to solve that specific problem about like, okay, you want to understand what are the economic factors that derive deforestation, but you actually don't know where deforestation is happening even in the first place. And so yeah. from that, you set on to, to start tackling that first problem and then being able to answer is why it's, it's happening. Am I getting this right? That's totally right. Yeah. And it became my dissertation in graduate school, which was sort of the understanding why the reduced emissions from deforestation and degradation, this framework, this red framework, failed in Indonesia. So the Norwegian government gave a billion dollars, or it promised a billion dollars for reduced deforestation in Indonesia. And other people, lots of other people, I think Kim Carlson, a bunch of people had published that there was an uptick in deforestation, that you know, mm -hmm. aggregate deforestation actually increased after this, this promise. And so my dissertation was on why. And for that, we needed highly resolved spatial information on deforestation. So, you know, what my, my dissertation was on was saying that the reason why that there was an increase was because there were these uh, concessions or areas of oil palm uh, concessions that had been grandfathered in 
But when that announcement was made, only 40 or 50% of these existing concessions had been totally deforested. Instead, they would sort of like, before they, they were promised more than they needed and then create a new concession before that. Right, so what okay. this did was it put a moratorium on new concessions, but didn't put any restrictions on the previous concession. And so instead of like going out and finding new places, like more fragmented deforestation, which was happening, it just sort of consolidated into um, existing concessions. And you really need highly resolved sp spatial resolution in, in order to see that, you know, to see that at the pixel basis, not at the provincial um, basis. You can't, if you go to the provincial basis, all the important variation gets sort of averaged away. It's like, right, I see, okay. Trying to do policy analysis with beer goggles on, you just can't get <laughs> to a good, a good, uh, to find that sort of important variation in the data um, to, to do policy analysis. And so I use that data from, from uh, FORMA, from Forest Monitoring for Action to, for, for my dissertation, which was a policy or economic dissertation, not like a GIS or spatial science. This is so interesting. I think this, this is really interesting that you were not going to do geospatial stuff, geographic stuff. You were trying to do something else. And it so happens that it, this is the way that you needed to solve it. Um, so why did it not just stay a tool that you used for your dissertation? Like, it seems like now it's something a lot bigger than that. And not all dissertation leads to something like Global Forest Watch. Oh, I wouldn't say that a dissertation led to Global Forest Watch. It was okay. that I used the data from it. I mean, this became like a much bigger thing because of um, there's two people at WRI like that turned it into sort of like a, what would amount to a, social sector business, I mean, nonprofit, you know, WRI, mm -hmm. they scaled it. And that was Fred Stola and uh, Craig Hansen. And they had, they were there and they, you know, they have a mindset to sort of grow and show relevance. Um, and that, that was the first couple of years of this at, at WRI. Fred Stola in particular was really, we had tried to shop this around to like Conservation International and the Nature Conservancy and WRI. And, you know, Fred was really, he really made it successful. He, he absorbed it and made it successful. Um, uh, or, uh, and Craig together. And so like, um, I, um, I don't know why these things take off, but it's right. one of the reasons why this is different from a lot of the other environmental data platforms out there is just that it's not just sort of the assembly of existing information in one place. It's not just sort of like put a bunch of stuff together that already exists out there okay. where there would be value just in the idea of having it exist in the same place. Because most people don't, in environment or policy, don't go to one place to act for all the data in there. They're, to answer their questions like they, they're used people are used to sort of assembling it from many different sources so that's mm -hmm. not a high enough value the the reason why i think that this was set was set apart and this is true for other information too is basically new a new sufficiently produced data in a single place that was you know complemented by existing data like on protected area boundaries or you know um or uh, you know, other layers basically, but it was right. new information that, that sort of brought people together um, or to the site. Um, and that's, that's rare. It's, it's hard to, to find a place that is releasing new actionable information. So information at a level of precision and accuracy and where you can actually see 
the provenance of the data. You're not just trusting someone's black box algorithm. Right. So those three things, you know, high precision, high accuracy, and then provenance um, were, were present. And I don't think we recognized that that was necessary um, and sufficient for a, um, you know, a, a lasting project. And so who started coming to the platform and, and consuming that? Because you can, you can, Put that out there like you're saying maybe not just an aggregator is not enough you need to have additional layers of, of information but then who is that useful for like how does that start becoming useful you could we could make i think there's a lot of examples in in like the earth observation and geospatial field of people who are like i'm going to build this amazing platform and nobody comes um so who were the people that that came and and that started making it grow um so yeah, it's it's a really good question, and and this is sort of the the foundation for why I'm working on what I'm working on right now, which is if you look at the user logs for the first few years of Global Forest Watch, there was this after it was released in 2014, there's a steady beat. There was a steady beat at the time around 1,500 to 3,000 people coming per day from all over the world, often from country you know from Indonesia uh, or, or Brazil or places where this is a sort of a hot topic issue. But that steady beat was punctuated by these large spikes of 20, 30, or 40,000 people that would come in a day. And those spikes um, corresponded to when a, uh, a journalist used the data in a service of reporting on an environmental or humanitarian event. So um, they used the data and they contextualized it, right? Like it's not just sort of pink pixels popping up on a screen, but it was people could sort of explain the story by why about why these pixels were so notable, right? Because there will always be sort of seasonal deforestation. There will always be like oil palm that's cut down and regrown. That means something different than deforestation in a, an indigenous territory for illegal gold mining, for example. And so when people use the data in the service of reporting or to you know, tell the story behind it, that's when it really sort of took off. And so the foundation for what I'm working on now was was based off of that idea. It's like, how can we operationalize those spikes? Like, how can we lift that baseline of 1,500 people to 30, 40,000 people just to get more eyes on earth change, like to understand what's going on? Uh, and so um, in this sort of new instantiation or this new life at, at Earthrise Media, we had started out by just getting journalists uh, access to earth observation data to help tell those stories. You know, journalists who already create content and command audience who already have access to those eyes and are trying to search for other ways in which to independently verify or corroborate their stories. Um, satellite imagery offered a really neat, um, you know, credible, compelling, low cost and globally comparable way in which to watch the earth change um, where you can see the change, right? You don't, you don't need to try to convince someone of some, you know, hyper parameters or whatever, like you just look at the, the gosh darn thing. Um, and, um, uh, and so that, that sort of started four, four and a half years ago, that started what we've been working on right now. So this is one of the big reasons I wanted to, to talk to you is, is like, what I see a lot is that there's a lot of very, um, talented people, data scientists that know how to use the data, but I feel like what's missing is the story, like telling the story that makes it relevant. Do you think that's kind of where the journalist came in and in, in being able to take that and tell that story um, and, and just being able to 
know where to look even in in you know this platform we're like it's great we can see the entire world um but that's that's just a statistic like you, you a plot doesn't tell a story do you think that's the thing that's made it successful in a way it's like working with those um journalists that are able to turn that into a story like no scientist would be able to so the short answer is yes. The long answer is much longer, but the short answer is, <laughs> We've got is, time. is yeah. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, sitting from behind a computer in, in Berkeley, California, I don't understand why when pic certain pixels light up, it'd be different than other pixels lighting up, you know, materially and economically different. Um, and, but it's not like just handing the baton off. It's not, here's a data set and, you know, someone else go use it. Ideally, it would be like that. It would make it much easier. There'd be real economies of scale if that were the case, but it's, it's more of a working with journalists that have sort of created these long form stories like tracking China's Muslim gulag, which is one of the stories we wrote with um, Reuters to identify the expansion of um, uh, these Uyghur detention centers, Uyghurs being the Muslim minority in Northern China. Um, and it's not so simple as just like, here's some satellite imagery go do it. It's, it is more of a give and take. And the problem with that is, is that there aren't, there's not a product there. It's more of a sort of a, a you know, a, a collaboration. Um, uh, so that we can't just hand off the data and expect people to, to make, make use of it, or we haven't figured out a way to do that. So how there are some tools. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I just wanted to ask like exactly how does that collaboration work? I think for as much as we love to, it's it's probably not like here's an API and you can just like look at any lat lawn you want in the world. That's that's a probably very data science software engineer approach. But how does that collaboration uh, work when you're working with journalists? No, it's a really good question. And this is why like a lot of the hype in the satellite imagery ends up being really costly um, because okay. it costs time when people come with preconceived notions about what satellite imagery can do. And those notions don't correspond with the actual true availability and um, of the data, both you know, through time, space, and scope. We just can't, can't see some stuff that people think that they would be able to see. So it, a lot of this is um, where we sort of had put it out there and, um, that, that we would like to help journalists. And we okay. started a conversation with them and about 70% of those times are the answer, the, the answer was you can't see that from satellite imagery or available satellite imagery. Um, it's either too small, uh, it happens too quickly um, uh, or um, you can't sort of distinguish it from other features in the landscape. So, but every so often, who, who yeah. was saying that? Was it the, the journalists we. themselves that were, or you were saying? No, no, that? we, yeah, we were saying that. Oh, okay, Me right. and Ed, Ed Boyda, yeah, um, who was my colleague early, early on here, where we started to work with journalists. Um, sorry, it should be more clear. They, you know, we would, Ed and I would start to work with journalists, and most of the time, the answer back to the journalists was, we can't see that from satellite, even though. You, you've come in with the idea that you can see this from overhead imagery. And I don't blame you for thinking that, uh, given all the hype, but um, Do you but have you examples of that? Is it like, uh, we want to see the, the plate numbers of every car in the country? Or is it like... <laughs> yeah, I certainly couldn't do that. Uh, uh, what was a good example of, we have, you know, we should catalog all the things we didn't do or said no to. It's much easier. We have this sort of natural catalog of all the things we did do. But in the negative space, like... Um, 
I'm just I trying to, to understand a little bit. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just wanted to understand, yeah. like, what's the, you know, where does that miss? It, it, it seems like there's a misalignment between what people's expectations are and, and what can be done. I'm just trying to understand that a little bit um, better. Yeah. Well, here's here's a here's a good one that's happening from this morning because we're starting to work on Global Plastics Watch now, which I'm okay. happy to yep. show you to, to identify plastic aggregations from space. But certain types of transient aggregations, like along a river, which is you know a phenomenon where you where it cuts across lots of pixels in a long line, uh, um, you can't really see. It doesn't register even at you know three meter resolution. You can't see it because it's cut. You know it's only maybe a hundred centimeters wide, but it lasts for a mile, it doesn't pick up. So even just sort of the, the compactness of the shapes that you're trying to get at, you can't, you can't see. Um, or that in that particular case, you know, it changes often, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's flowing, it's water, it's transient. And, you know, it's not just about what the stated revisit would be of like, let's say the stated revisit is three to five days or something like that. Um, there's clouds for these areas. I mean, you might only get sort of the a consistent image once every month. And, you know, it's hard to track these transient movements of plastics once a month. Um, so it is a more of a conversation than a stated rule about what you can see from satellite imagery. And, um, and so we had those conversations with journalists and it led to some some great investigations because there's a lot you can see like where this where satellite imagery is good it is really really good it's just not good everywhere it's not good most places for most applications but where it is good it's like you can really knock it out of the park so let's go there let's go in the, in the cases yes. where it does work um could you walk me through like what a what a, a project would look like in in that scenario uh, I think I'm I'm a lot more used to you know how does it work in in a team of people who are very technical and, and trying to then have something that that goes to a client that just cares about the the chart at the end or something like that. Yeah. How does how does it work when you're trying to work with someone in, in what sounds like a very different scenario and with with a journalist when you're trying to tell that story? Well, the thing that's top of mind is actually is, is Plastics Watch right now, and, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to not um, just share my screen, but it's at plastic.watch.earthrise.media is sort of the dev site or dev.plastic.watch if, if you want to see the Yeah, I'll put some link in, the, in the show site. notes. Okay. Um, and this isn't so much journalists, but policymakers, but it's still right. the same. It's people who have sort of local and in-depth knowledge about the about sort of the phenomenon that they're working for, okay. that, they're look, that they're looking for in order to do something specific. And so we need to try to get them information that is that has coverage or sufficient coverage through space, time, and scope. So um, I can explain that last thing in, in a little bit. But um, and that it's the the uh, the value self-evident. So we we try to focus on these applications that are like finding a needle in a haystack. But when you find that needle, you know it's a needle. You know, unlike right. sort of these wall-to-wall -wall estimates of um, of you know, let's say uh, and people should do this and they are doing this in really compelling ways, but like for forest carbon, for overstory or risk or something like that, this is really powerful and needed science. And, um, but it's, it's harder to translate that for policy or journalists un relative to just looking and counting how many dump sites there are, right? We just need to have a plastic dump site. Let's just look and count them. And you need the assistance of 
AI and satellite imagery in order to do that, um, to just pick through all those, you know, uh, the images you know, across mm. space, time, and spectra. Like, just you, you need some assistance there. But once you find them, then it's really hard to get a uh, false positive. That is, um, if if we identify something as a plastic dump site, let's say there's you know a thousand uh, in Indonesia of these dump sites, you can pretty quickly go through and just check yourself to see right. if it's actually a dump site, and that ends up being really powerful. We miss a lot of stuff though, also, but it ends up being powerful ways so that people can can trust the data that's that's coming out of it, um, and so. This, like how this works is like, we'll talk to like a local decision maker, someone who's an expert in waste management. We work alongside okay. the Mindaroo Foundation to do this. It's an Australian foundation that's sponsoring this project. And they have a lot of contacts in Indonesia uh, in waste management. And they say like, you know, we need to sort of see how these dump sites have been changing over time in order, for example, to deploy mobile recycling units, right? Um, and so, We'll sort of track these aggregations over space and time and add sort of features to this emerging uh, platform uh, that correspond with what a particular person on the ground needs right now in order to um, to make a decision and, and to write a report mostly. You know, like how okay. can you then aggregate this up in order to put in a PDF and send it off to your boss is sort of the, is what we're finding is, is most needed. So. Um, earlier, uh, just again, before we were recording, um, we talked a little bit about Bruno Sanchez. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the really interesting things that I, I talked about with him when he was on the podcast is, is impact science and how do you turn those information into action, actually actionable um, things, like things that end up solving a problem and not just a, a nice dashboard. And so in those contexts, how... Do you make sure that whatever analysis that you do, like finding where um, those those dump areas are, how, how do you make sure that it actually does solve their problem and that also just the way you're delivering it solves their problem? Well, I don't know if I want to talk about impact science because <laughs> uh, relative to the person who like wrote the book on impact science, like I, I'm just setting myself up to be <laughs> criticized, but um, I, um, I, I don't know. I mean, part of this is a leap of faith, right? Is okay. like, uh, is it, it's, it's really hard to think that more information about the way the natural world is changing will, will be net negative, that that will hurt the world in some way. The people yeah. who are do, doing extraction probably have differentially or disproportionately more information than the people who are affected by it. So more open information is better. In fact, there's like people have won Nobel prizes basically showing the value of symmetric information in the environment. So part of it is just like, get it out there. But there's a lot of maps out there that just don't get used that collect dust on some, you know, old and dark corner of the internet. Um, and so, you know, personally, like the question is, is like, how can, can, can we, can I make sure that I'm like, you know, applying time and effort in a way that I can feel comfortable or um, is, is having some impact. And then, you know, Bruno talks more about like how to, how to 
measure the magnitude of that vector, that impact vector. Um, I'm just concerned with the direction. So, if, you know, like if, if I'm going in the right direction, then I'm feeling pretty good um, as long as I, there's some sense of magnitude. And so one of the things that's been really tough is like we've, you know, we go through these, like there's a discovery, a product discovery process that's pretty well documented. Um, it was put out by, I think his name was Steve Blank, and it's often used in order to like find a good product market fit, you know, to identify your users, your customers, your the beneficiaries, the value proposition, the cost structures, like ways in which to sort of develop this business model canvas. For impact, it 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 starts to fray pretty pretty soon when you start because that it's sort of that type of model of trying to find those transactions that um uh those sort of private sector transactions starts to fray when cost, value, and price aren't the same thing anymore. So in the private market, when I, you know, when we're transacting on a Snickers bar uh, in sort of a private transaction, um, we the the cost to create the Snickers bar and the value might be slightly different. That's where there's like consumer producer surplus, but the price can be agreed upon as sort of a transactable price. For things that have like big environmental externalities or um, where the beneficiaries are different than the people who pay, who are different than the people who, who, um, who produce, really it's the beneficiaries versus the customers here or the payers, that starts to, to you can't use that same process. It really is sort of a pro policy discovery process for, for impact. And so it's complicated and I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting I know very much about it. There are people who like dedicate themselves to that science, uh, to that economic science, um, and uh, and in order to value those types of of uh, to you know to identify the value of information, um, but sort of being aware that this that this exists that we won't be able to sort of like you know. Uh, like very clearly identify the value of information. It's sort of like, well, I'll be sort of lazy, but sort of principally lazy and say that like more information is better out there. And if we can try to find a few examples of where that cracked the nut on a particular policy application, then there's probably more out there and we should just make it as available as possible. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess my question was coming from a place of that there's a lot of, of hype um, in, in earth observation right now in, in data science and machine learning. So if you combine them all together, there's even more. And, and a lot of it seems to be a bit far from understanding the problem that we're actually solving. And so that's, that's kind of why I'm asking that as well is like, what can we do as, as people who kind of have that knowledge and those skills to, to manipulate those data and to answer pretty much any question like, how do we make sure that the questions that we are trying to answer make sense and that we're not just a little bit in this um, utopia of like, we made a dashboard problem solved, let's move on to the next one. Um, but I, I can imagine it is definitely a, a very complicated problem uh, for sure. Uh, so this and this this is the big question. I, I, I mean, I think that this is a really important question. And the reason why is because I there are often maps that are out there that give a number for every pixel on earth. So it's precise everywhere. It's a single number. It's precise everywhere, but accurate nowhere and useful nowhere. It's sort of like, it's good for sort of regional aggregations on like soil carbon. It's really good to understand broad trends at the country level, but we know, and even, you know, the soil scientists will tell you that publish these global maps that 
it, at the field level for a specific field, you, you can't trust it. That's not what it was used for or it was created for, but it's often what it's used for because it's there, it's accessible. Like, so people will use it even if it, they're not really supposed to or understand the uncertainty of it. And so the question is, is not so much where to, to find more maps that are precise everywhere and accurate nowhere, which is good, again, good for screening, but that the confirmation tools, just like in, in like cancer, uh, there's like screening tests and then there's confirmation tests. So to, to once you sort of have a general idea of where you would wanna look, to be able to start to interact with the data in such a way that you can get the answer that's very, very locally relevant is not going to be a global data set, right? It'll be a set of tools uh, it's a set of interactions with the data, not uh, you know, um, a, uh, not a, an answer that comes directly from the data. So those interactions would just be more efficient ways in which to effectively interrogate those images and how those images change over time and how to in interrogate the images across multiple bands if they're not optical imagery. But to, for people who are, are not experts in remote sensing to be able to sort of like figure out how to connect their known and local knowledge about a place and how things are changing means something very particular for policy or economic decisions and find and sort of expand that outward. So if I know that I want to find an aggregation of plastics that looks like this, how can I find all the other things that look like that within a 50 mm. mile radius? Okay. Um, um, but, but, and that is not a data set. That's not a global data set that you can create a priori, right? It's more of that interaction or conversation with the end user, just like the journalists, right? It's, it's not just sort of like, here's a bunch of data, go figure out how to use it. It's a little bit more um, of a conversation. And, and unfortunately, like at, at first blush, that a conversation is not, there's not economies of scale. You can't like found a startup based off of, a con yeah. like the, it's like consulting services, right? But some of those tools, I think we're getting to the point where they're advanced enough that, that there are sort of enough repeated um, interactions that those tools can be um, sold as product. And I'm excited to see what this next round of Earth observation looks like when, when people stop creating maps because they can and they start creating interactions because they should. I was going to ask, what, what do you think that means for the data scientist of, of today working on it? But I, I guess that pretty much answers that question. So do you, if, I, if I were to rephrase that, do you think it's, it's if I understand correctly, it's more about like, let's stop making this like worldwide data sets that we don't really know necessarily where to trust in different regions, but more focus on a specific area where we know we can try to solve the problem and understand where we are going to have limitations on that specific problem rather than something that's very general and we don't also know where that might have limitations. I, I think recently there's been a lot of uh, really cool efforts to try to get um, analysis layers out of a lot of the Sentinel um, data that we have. We've, we're seeing like land cover maps at, at the resolution of, of Sentinel, things like that. Um, I, I think one of the things that comes out of that is we don't really know where it's accurate and, and where it's not, um, even though they're, they're great tools. So do, do you think it, do you, would you like to see actually more people focus on those like more closer, I would say to, to the people and to the things that you're trying to solve to be able to say where we also don't know? Yeah, so I think in this conversation, I've fallen into this sort of preachy tone. I don't, I don't, anyone should do whatever they want to do. I, um, I, 
but I do think that there's there's probably a lot of room for impact. Um, so the marginal bang per buck along the impact dimension is probably much greater in figuring out tools that uh, for local decision makers right, rather than right. global maps. Um, and also to move away from interpreted or modeled estimates and go more into inventories of things that can be either self-evident. So instead of like trying to identify um, uh, like poverty from satellite imagery to identify some of the, an inventory just very clearly document some of the components that might be associated or useful for local policymakers in order to, to make those estimates. Like, you know, just very, good and precise way in which to uh, allow a local person to differentiate between different types of roofs. That's right. something you can do. It's like, and it should be done, I think, from, from satellite imagery, um, uh, rather than sort of the roll-up modeled statistics that, um, you know, get a foundation really excited, but don't necessarily, um, you know, change, uh, get to the truth, right, like right. a ground truth, um, aren't associated with that. So I don't know, people should do whatever they want to do, but, um, uh, <laughs> that's where I think there would be the, the most. Yeah, no, no, of, of course. I think it definitely, and, and I'm, I'm more phrasing that in like trying to understand from, from the experience that you have and, and all the work that you've done, what you think is definitely the, the most impactful thing. Cause I think it, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you didn't come into this space because you wanted to do geospatial stuff. You wanted to solve a specific problem. And I think we're getting to a point where a lot of people are also doing that, but there is people coming in and, and staying because of the geospatial stuff. And so I'm just trying to understand how do we get back to, to solving a lot of the super cool, interesting problems uh, with, with a lot of the data. It, it actually, um, Moving on from that, I, I want to get back to, to Earthrise Media um, that, that you work on. And when I was kind of preparing this uh, episode, one of the things that strike, struck me, I always have a problem with that word, uh, you, you know what I mean, um, that yeah. stood out, let's go that way, um, just at least going on, on the website um, there is that it seems like there's a lot of very different projects. Um, that, that you guys are working on. It doesn't seem like, I didn't get this feeling of like, oh, you, you have like one thing in the back end and then you just repackaged it 10 times to, to work on the same thing. It looks like there's, there's many different projects. You, you, you talked about the, the Global Plastic Watch. Um, there was, a, I saw something about um, greenhouse gas emission reporting, things for um, packaging and selling environmental assets. Like th those look very different um, projects and with very different stakeholders. So I, I kind of wonder um, how that ended up being and, and how you decide what projects you, you end up going towards. Yeah, it's a good question too. I, I um, the, so we, when COVID hit, we moved away from just purely working with journalists because we got scared about, like we're, we're nonprofit, so we're supported by grants. We got scared okay. about, uh, um, uh, you know, our sort of funding sources being now dedicated for health, which it should have been, right? Or we thought, you know, that would make sense. And so we started to take our skills that we had developed in just sort of by happenstance, I mean, sort of historical accidents of design and data science together. So, you know, graphical design and data science and start to try to figure out ways in which we could do that more for, for hire, right? Like we do that 
instead of focusing on the things that we think are important, we help other organizations who are working in the environment put stuff on the internet that they think isn't is important. Okay. Um, and so that that shift came, and it was starting before um, COVID hit, but it was really accelerated by by COVID into what looks more like a digital agency for the environment as opposed to, you know, uh, supporting journalists. But so what what we do now, but it's but it was the same techniques. It was storytelling. It was you know digital infrastructure. Uh, it was identifying patterns from within Earth observation data, and it was uh, design. Um, we sort of like would like to fashion ourselves as more of like the the architects of this digital experiences, and then we work with other groups um, to like DevSeed or uh, Visuality or other groups to help build out those things. But it first goes through this round of sort of visioning like what that digital product would look like in order to get mm -hmm. that message out to many more people. So for example, for Climate Trace, you know, we, we were building the, the, the website, you know, and doing the APIs to support the website. We don't generate the data for Climate Trace, which is Al Gore's process, a project to uh, measure emissions from satellite imagery. That comes from a whole group, a coalition of members that sort of are experts in a particular sector. But once that data has been sort of generated, we're trying to figure out ways in which to make it simple to engage with and beautiful to engage with. Um, and so the way the selection criteria is like, we're a small shop and we wanna remain small. Uh, to, so it would be, where can we early stage help uh, uh, design that uh, digital interaction for environmental data. Uh, and then we'll work to sort of develop the blueprints alongside other partners. Um, and it turns out that there's a lot of that out there. And so our initial fears that there wouldn't be sort of a, a market for this type of work was just like totally wrong. Um, in fact, the last couple of years, the, I think that the, the market size for environmental data has grown by two orders of magnitude, mainly because of philanthropic okay. efforts from like Green Pal Jobs and Jeff Bezos and Mark Benioff. I mean, even those alone, I mean, they're committing billions and billions of dollars. And so just like there was a gold rush in, in the 1840, late 1840s in California, an actual gold rush. There's a gold rush now for environmental data. And we sort of see ourselves as like the Levi's, um, like the groups that sort of furnish those miners. Um, right. And uh, uh, to sort of help do that their digital work better, cheaper, and faster. So you're selling environmental shovels to people? <laughs> no, I don't say shovels. We're selling like the, uh, uh, we're making them look good while they're shoveling. So okay. yeah, we really are the, the jeans makers here. I think. Okay, jeans um, make. All right, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we really do like the way in which we're working right now is we, we work with these sort of projects that we believe will have high impact like punch well above their weight okay. and what they're missing are design and data science and digital infrastructure, not totally missing it, mm -hmm. but that they mm -hmm. could sort of like be enhanced with, with, um, with things that we've assembled over time. So I'm not, I'm not totally, you know, and all this is, is still shifting and we'll figure out who we, who we are and what we want to be when we grow up uh, you know, as we go. <laughs> but, um, but I, I do think that uh, there will always be a component of, design and data science for environmental applications. That's That will remain constant until we disappear. I think a lot of people can see the value of, of data science. 
I find it very interesting that you decided to um, have a design as, as a pillar of that as well. And not just that, but alongside data science. Um, and this is something I find really interesting and, and I'd love to ask why. Well, so as you know, as I had mentioned, our, like our working definition of data science is the practice of identifying and then communicating patterns from within data. And usually data science ends at around like visualization of data. Um, and, um, and so we're just trying to lean into that sort of that, um, that supply chain, I guess, of environmental insight. We're trying to lean into the, um, the, the interactions, the design mm -hmm. interactions. So UI, UX design around environmental data. Um, uh, one of the, the managing partners at Earthrise, he got his start in, um, in the creative agency space for uh, working for like the NFL or Pepsi or okay. you know, consumer brands. Um, and, uh, and sort of take that same level of fidelity of that end user interaction and, um, and, and apply it for in the environment. You mentioned earlier, like you're you're trying to make beautiful products and 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 trying. Yeah. I, I I like that you use that word, and I I haven't used it. I haven't heard it. Sorry, before in in this context of like environmental science, which you know when I hear about it, most of the time it's all about the science. It's all about having better sensors. It's all about um, gathering more data. And this is something like super serious and we don't have time to make this pretty and beautiful. Um, but, but it seems like it, it really comes up a lot about like, it's, this is really important. Um, and, and I really want to understand like how that come to be, that, that came to be something that, that is important. It, it, is that something that you went from the get-go of like, like, data science and design, or is it something that kind of slowly grew and you realized this is something that we need to start really thinking and taking seriously? Um, well, so it, it was, it, there's a bunch of sort of like a, a paths that, a confluence of paths here. So one was the journalist thread, uh, which is uh, the uh, that is about the communication of these patterns. It's it's just communication and pattern and you know the pattern the you know the growth of the Uyghur detention centers or the footprints the building footprints. That's that is supporting the communication of this story. Uh, and so part of it was 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 starting much further downstream uh, and in a particular place where it's it's just the, the, it's professionalized communication. Another one was. Like when we start to look at, you ask, um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say you, you would know more about this, but if, if I gave you a place on earth and I told you to tell me the fire risk associated with that, that place, and I asked five different fire scientists what the risk of fire is, you're gonna get five different answers. And some of them are really different answers. Um, and so the idea of how do you, and, but there's more and more value to have variation to like understand why there would be um, those differences or even just be able to interact with, with different estimates for the same place on earth, for the same phenomenon. And that really is about design, right? To be able to take five different estimates, be able to communicate that there is uncertainty. It's not like people can't deal with uncertainty, right? It's just, it's, it's, it has to just be 
displayed and uh, um, communicated appropriately, um, especially if you're like a, an asset manager or a insurance uh, agent, like that, they, of course they deal with uncertainty. That's their life. They price it in, but they have to know it and they have to be able to interact with it in certain ways. And so there was like a gap here between a lot of great science and data science, physical and data science that was going on and the ways in which those end users would actually like meaningfully interact with it. Um, and I don't know exactly why, but it, it hasn't been a focus of the uh, profession. I mean, these have been, you know, professional tools with, you know, Esri and um, Earth Engine. I mean, these are pro tools uh, and there, there's just not a lot of work on the further downstream applications. And so we, we found a, a match with our skills. Um, and, you know, it may have been, you know, a hammer looking for a nail. Like we had these skills and we were looking for a problem to use and then, you know, retroactively try to justify it. But, but we are, we're finding that there's like a lot of demand for that, for that type of interaction with geospatial data. This is going to go a little bit outside of just the, the, the geospatial aspect, but I find that really interesting, this, this notion of, of uncertainty and dealing with uncertainty. Um, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I was a bit frustrated with how social media and a lot of the communication we had started to get simpler and simpler and boiled down. And I was like, I want more of the long, messy, complicated conversations with people where there's nuance, where people take the time to explain what they think. And there is uncertainty and things don't fit in, in a box. How do you, how do you communicate uncertainty like that in a world where it feels sometimes like we're, we're trying to move away from that things are more and more polarized in a way we don't listen to we don't seek uncertainty just that much i think covid has been a bit of an example of that where dealing with uncertainty was part of covid and and i don't think we could really call that a success so in your experience how do you communicate that uncertainty and how do you make sure that it is communicated uh, well. Yeah, the, so based off just sort of the, like I think the, the way in which this, the, the field has developed, um, communicating uncertainty means basically more words on the page or like you, it's just voluminous in the way in which you communicate that. So it's more like a Charles Dickens novel where you're paid by the word. It's just okay. really lots of wordy as opposed to haiku, which is trying to get the same sense out there with far fewer words, right? And that's what good design does is it can communicate a depth there uh, much quicker um, or much more quickly like uh, and efficiently. Um, and and so that, that's where we're trying to fit. We're trying to to, to find those sort of, there's not a single answer to, for your question. This is a practice. It's a discipline of design yeah. that changes uh, by end application. But, um, but there is a set of tools out there and a, and a, and a, um, and a almost just like at a predisposition towards uh, you know, impatience at that, you know, in that space of saying it's worth some, upfront thought about how to effectively and efficiently communicate some very difficult and complex concepts um, uh, so that people can, can, can use that, that information um, as opposed to just sort of like just blurting out as much as you can that people don't use. I mean, it becomes so much text about uncertainty and subtext that it's, people ignore it. 
you know, and then they, mm. they choose that one number as opposed to the, the, you know, being able to adequately engage with the five numbers that, that right, different right. people come out with. So, um, you know, again, it, 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 it's, it's an ignored field, I think, or, you know, subfield here of the, you know, communicating uncertainty from uh, data derived from earth observation, but, um, but where we are right now in that world of Twitter um, design plays a big, big role. So professional mm. designers, I think I'd been asked at one point I was asked like, what would be like your first hire for a new geospatial business startup? And the answer is a designer. Interesting. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. I mean, for my, I mean, I'm not doing like, you know, parameterized insurance or anything like that. So yeah, like yeah, maybe yeah. No, I, that's I, different, but no, 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 uh, but, but like, I, I know this, you know, sometimes you come across a moment where like, uh, I'm probably going to be thinking about this for like three days. Well, I think this is one of those moments. Um, what has been the kind of response to, to the, the work that, that you've put out, um, like trying to do that, trying to really put that focus on there. Have you, have you had, uh, responses from people that, that, how do you know that you're going, for example, in the right direction um, and that you would make that choice again about, you know, designer uh, first hire? I don't know. I mean, the, the problem is, is that I have this one experience right now, um, this lived experience of Earthrise Media. And so I, I'm trying to extend it so that it's useful to anyone else aside from just me. Um, and I don't know if I have like a good framework of understanding to be able to. That's okay. That. We just talked about well, uncertainty okay. before. Yeah, I, I think guess. we can we can like <laughs> lean on that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think for this particular question, I'm going to pass because like I don't have enough. I just start talking and saying words, and I don't think that there would be that's any fine. signal behind sure. that noise. No, I, I I love it as well. Like it, okay. I I think that's that's um, and I appreciate it as well. Um, you know. Sometimes I think we just uh, answer stuff we don't we we shouldn't. So no, let's 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 move on from that. Um, still still want to stay on on Earthrise Media. Um, you you mentioned it's a nonprofit. Um, I'm very curious as to as to why go down that route. Well, it's really funny because we started at that route, and now we're trying. Now we're at a point of do we continue down this route or do we just become a B corporation? I mean, we. Uh, Everyone here has done work elsewhere, be it at, at Planet Labs or Mapbox or these other groups um, and, um, or Leap Motion or Google. I mean, these are places where people have come from and have come to this place in order to say, all right, I care about the environment. I have this one set of skills, be it data science or design or product design also. Like, what can, what can we do? And this is providing that that space, this collaborative. I mean, it really is, we're treating this like a co-op, a co cooperative in order to apply those skills for the environment, however, is best needed, sort of not guided by, or not without like a fiduciary responsibility to investors, which really does come into play with for earth observation, really does mm -hmm. show, uh, um, force a path, I think. Um, and, and so now we're at this place where like, there is a, there's a business here. There's a business to, of helping other people in the environmental space. Um, it might be a for-profit that's owned by the nonprofit so that it, you know, the okay. nonprofit has a very, a very strong role in the selection of these pro projects so that we're, you know, 
we ensure that we don't take money from defense and intelligence contracts. Um, but um, but we're actually, we're coming at this from a, a different place. So to answer your question, we, um, it wasn't a, it's not a choice here. We're just continuing down a path that we were before, which was nonprofit. And now, now we're at a new choice of to go for profit or to remain a nonprofit. And um, that hasn't been, hasn't been settled yet. So why, why did it start as a, as a nonprofit in the first place then? Well, a couple of reasons. One is, um, um, well, I joined two, two people who had a nonprofit, Steve McCormick, who used to run the Nature Conservancy and the Moore Foundation for many years, and Glenn Lowe. And, um, and, um, and so had joined also just how do you use data for environmental applications or the you know, more efficient use of natural resources. So part of it was historical accident, but part of it, the reason why I really sort of was eager for that was I had worked on a, a project called Space No, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is still around, spacenow.com. And, um, and it really does and continues to show the power of earth observation for commercial purposes. Um, but the applications that, that we were working on ended up not being sort of like, you know, just where I wanted to spend my time. Not, okay. not, and, and, I, and I attributed that, whether or not it's true or false, to uh, it being a private sector or, you know, with investment, you know, that sort of at the beholden to investors as opposed to beholden to, I don't know, environment, life, mother mm -hmm. nature, who, I don't know, whatever, something else aside from a, a very wealthy person um, uh, with, a very, with a specific and vested interest. Um, you know, a financially vested interest. Um, so I was primed and ready for a nonprofit at that point, and it just sort of stayed that way. Right. What were, like, a lot of the appeal of, of going for profit is that, you know, you can raise uh, capital as well if you, if you go for that. Is that something that you were just able to, to go without? Um, from, you know, if we go down a bit more business conversation, like, I, I always wonder how are you able to, to get started down that route on like, and, and how were things started for, for you? Um, I don't know why. So, the, so we don't, we don't need uh, external investment. We're not working on a product of our own basically. Okay. So we don't need to invest and we're bootstrapped our team here through, mm -hmm. you know, grants and, and, you know, uh, and, and work for, for other environmental organizations or partnering with other environmental organizations. So we, we don't have right now, we don't have a cause and this will change. And, and I, I um, you know, this uh, podcast might be deprecated in a few months as things continue to change here. So I, I might, um, it might not be totally true just yet, but, but, but anyway, in our current sort of form, um, we, we don't need outside investment. Right. Um, we do need to attract good talent here. And good talent mm. means that they're paid like adults. You can't pay them with stock options and stuff, but you do need to pay them so that they can live comfortably in the, the Bay Area and not get their salaries cut by three or four times that they could make doing the same work, but for advertising at Google, for example. Um, 
And so one of the reasons why we might end up going for profit is just, you know, compensation structure. Right. Um, but we don't need, but that would be the only reason, honestly, uh, mm. at this point. Um, you know, we, we have sort of like, we are now, we, we can, we don't, we, we don't take grants like we, we did before. Um, we don't depend on them like we did before to do this type of work. And so it really is in this gray area right now where we got to figure out how to, to sort of be intellectually honest with ourselves and the people we work with. And mm. it's just, it's just changing. So I'll bet that we change up recently or so, I mean, we'll change at some point right, right, right. in some form or another. I'm not totally sure. And so what is, um, how has, you know, building a team been? And and, and um, this is something I, I know very little about, but I'm, I'm very curious, how have you built the team that, that you have currently at, at Northwest Media? It's friends and friends of friends, honestly. Okay. You know, like it's been people who want to work on this thing and it's, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're just now actually starting to, to actually do sort of recruiting and we do still work through friends. Mm. We don't pop, post these things openly or, you know, wow, ask okay. for, um, but, but right now we're starting to get to the point where the demand is too high for us to rely on those networks. And also it's, it's not fair. Like the people that we, we work with are, it, it's not going to yield the team that we need to uh, like a, a diverse and inclusive team because it's our networks and our networks mm, and networks. Mm. And we need that. We need that sort of the diversity of perspective to make sure that we are future proofed. It's too brittle otherwise. And so mm -hmm. um, where it was fine when we were a project, uh, it's not going to be fine when we are a, um, a much larger organization. Um, right. You know, I, I didn't even ask, but like how, how many people um, are you right now? It's hard to say exactly. It's like nine full-time, a lot of half-time, uh, another 10 or 15 half-time, and then a okay. lot of contractors. So, okay. um, which is, you know, it's, it's, again, it's fine to operate this way when we're, when we're at this size, but if we, if, if, even if we just tried to meet the demand for NEC for 2022, we're going to need to hire a bunch of people full-time. And we can't do that through our current networks because it's it's too hard and right, right, not right. right. So there's one last thing I want to ask regarding uh, Earthrise is is the name where it comes from. Um, I, I saw on, on the website there's a whole page about um, where it comes from, but I, I still wanted to ask. So it's um, it comes from, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, this picture that I think was taken um, by Apollo 8 um, as they, so Apollo 8 was the, the first, um, the first time people went uh, around the moon. Um, and it's the picture that they took as they came from behind the moon and, and they saw the, the earth again. It, it's one of my favorite pictures. I have it as my desktop since years. And it's, it's a, it's a picture that, um, a lot of people love, I love, and apparently I'm not the only one because there's a company named around it. And so I'm very curious as to why that specific choice. Yeah, actually there's a lot of companies named around it, which is a problem for us, but um, <laughs> the, um, it, so um, 
I, before Earthrise, I'd worked at NASA for a long time, and I have a, mm-hmm. a, a continue. We continue to get to work with uh, a lot of astronauts, and you you ask them about that sort of overview effect, that effect that you mm-hmm. get when um, you know you see this tiny little planet hanging in space that's both seems like nothing, but it's also everything you love uh, is 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 on that planet and we you know you hear about that profound experience um and sort of a perspective shift and you know one of the questions is you know that was a static photograph taken in the 60s right and it's, you can't really see very much but it still set off the modern environmental movement or at least it was contributing yeah. it was part and parcel with the environment you know the modern environmental movement so what would earthrise look like if it were done today right like what you know it wouldn't be just a static image of the earth we get those from the Discover satellite, like every three days right now, the Deep Space Observatory. Um, so, what would it do? What would it look like if it was going to have that same effect on people? Not just the 555 astronauts, or I don't even know if you count commercial ones now, but you know, I don't know, less than a thousand people who have seen that whole that perspective. But what would it look like to be able to bring that perspective again to billions of people, right? And it wouldn't be a static image. It would be a way in which to sort of engage with changes on the Earth's surface in a meaningful way. Um, and we have the ability to do that with all these new sensors and new information. And for some reason, there's a gap between the availability data and the meaningful use of it. Uh, and if, and, and a way in which to judge success in this space would be that it would have the same impact for someone like a normal person, my mom, for example, looking at that image in 1968, and using whatever this sort of like set of interactions looks like right now, right? Like it would have that same impact. It's like, man, I can see a lot. Like I am both small uh, in space and time, but also uh, it feels very meaningful to me. Um, uh, and and so that that's sort of like one of the overarching missions here, which is just to be able to, to make changes on earth as accessible and available and powerful as that uh, original image was, but using all the new tools and technology that we have right now. I mean, that sounds like a great mission. And like, I I just love that. This to me kind of sounds like a little bit of of the design aspect of of what you've all taught that goes into just naming the the, the whole encompassing thing. Um, I I tend to think that naming things like kind of make them a little bit more real and and finding a good name is, is, like so important um so i i kind of admire all that thought that seems to have gone behind um naming uh the the well nonprofit that that you have built and work for yeah you know and and i think that i i can't remember i'm trying to look right now but um you know i think it was frank bowman borman uh, who was on that Apollo 8 flight, who was like, I'm looking, yeah, he was like a colonel in the Air Force and a test pilot and a rancher and an astronaut. And I remember hearing sort of stories from him, from other people about him. I believe it was him from other, there was one of the three people there, but um, not Bill Anders who took the photo, but where he was just like this stone-faced, really serious guy. Actually, I think there's a podcast about this. I think it was like This American Life or Reply All or something like that. And he like they'd like turn the corner, they saw the planet and he's like got teary eyed, this like hard stone faced colonel in the air force. Um, and it was like such a powerful 
moment and image uh, that could bring that guy to tears. Like mm. that's that's worth trying to figure out why that happened and to operationalize it, sort of weaponize it, but not in such an aggressive term for it. <laughs> but like, you know, get it yeah, out this, to a lot more people. One of the reasons I also wanted to to, to ask you about that is um, I I came from um, aerospace engineering. I studied mechanical aerospace engineering. And a lot of it was that was looking up to the moon and, and being like, wow, like 12 dudes just walked on that thing. And it was 50 years ago and, and we haven't been back. And just like the, the whole inspirational aspect that space brings. And a lot of it is through crewed flights, like when we send humans. And it, it's been very interesting to see that transition towards the Earth observation field where there is a lot of excitement about it, but it feels like it's maybe an order of magnitude or, or maybe less as much as it is for, for everything that happens when we send humans to space, which is you know undoubtedly the coolest thing ever. But it's been really interesting <laughs> to see that transition to, okay, let's try to solve problems now using all that tech, which is what a lot of space enthusiasts uh, argue about. It's like, no, 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 space is useful. We send satellites and we, we do a lot of cool stuff on earth. And then when you, when you go towards that, it, it's, I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed that people aren't as excited about that as when we send people um, to space. But I, I understand it, but it's been a very interesting transition to go from you know, the really cool aerospace engineering, we, we send people to, to space to like, now let's use that to try to solve problems and, and wanting more people to be excited about that. Um, well, so there's this, um, there's uh, the Pew Research Survey in 2018 that asked Americans what uh, NASA should do, what the space agency should do. And sending mm -hmm. astronauts to the moon and Mars scored the lowest of the questions. Oh, okay. It was around like 12, 15% said it was a top priority to send astronauts to Mars and to the moon. And again, this is a public agency. So part of this was just like, let Bezos do it. Like it's private now, like let them do their own thing. Um, the top one was monitor key parts of the earth's climate system, you know? And that's, that, that was around, you know, 60% of adults uh, said that should be the top priority uh, for NASA. Um, uh, and then, um, and it's that is even more stark with young people. Um, young people want to see sort of more attention paid paid to Earth, and so there it is. It's it's changing. It still doesn't have that same sort of visceral response as you had, where it's like there are people up there on that rock, you know. Um, but part of that is just because it doesn't that that doesn't always have to be the case, you know. Like there's there were decades, if not a whole century now, of of like basically promoting that idea that this is the, like the pinnacle of engineering achievement is to put people up there. Now we're sort of like getting to, well, you know, it, it does, it is the, it should be and could be the pinnacle of engineering achievement just to understand what's going on on earth and help to like make this our home planet livable space. I mean, it was part of the 1958 charter in NASA to like focus on the home planet. It's like one of the three big priorities. And we forgot about that at some point. Um, and, uh, um, I think that with more attention of a uh, toward environment and climate, that that might actually change. You can sort of feel it, feel the ground shift. Even the last year, um, uh, starting to shift, or two years, three years. Um, so, uh, anyway, that that's 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 mainly all I've got there.
<laughs> no, but I, that that's a that's a great point. Like it, it kind of warms my heart actually that that um, survey. Um, and I'll definitely put that in in the show notes as well. But this this is great to see. And to be fair, like um, I one of the things that I would love to come out of this podcast is to get even more love for things like the the Landsat project and and Copernicus, because it blows my mind how. Yeah these data sets are, are free and public and you can just go there and build whatever the heck you want out of it. Um, and that not, it's amazing. I, I want my mom to know about that. When, yeah. when we reach that level, I'll, I'll be really happy. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. It's, it's <laughs> one of the, the, the most amazing pub. I mean, I'm very biased here, but most amazing public goods uh, that that's out there is this sort of very high quality freely available information it's only going to get better over time um but that said it could get much better i mean like even despite that survey just said it's flipped with the budget priorities because like nasa's fiscal year 2021 budget and i haven't revisited this this was proposed at the time and i haven't looked at it since but uh going to outer space accounted for 14.1 billion dollars but understanding our home planet was only 1.8 billion dollars so one tenth Mm. our home planet relative to everything out out there and again, there's a real reason to like look outwards. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I just maybe a little bit more balance, given <laughs> it's a public agency and people care are imbalanced in the other direction. So a little bit more balance. Yeah, this is gonna. This is where, um, be, being European, I have to say I'm, I'm very proud of ESA. For, yeah, you guys should all, be. All it's yeah. doing. You're holding it over me right now. I can see it in your eyes. So. <laughs> um, Dan, this is this is great. I I wanna. I, I usually wrap up these conversations again with the same question. Um, I'd like to know if, if you've read anything um, or, or listened to anything, um, not necessarily recently, but just something that has um, touched you or you think was, was really interesting that, that was thoughtful that you think would be worth um, sharing. I'm slowly realizing that things like, like books and podcasts happen a lot through um, recommendations of people. So I'm very curious as well. I think it's very telling to know what people um, enjoy and usually try to recommend. So I, I just wonder if there's um, a book, a podcast, a, a documentary, something that's, um, you know, I was going to say struck you. I'm, again, not sure if I got the tense right. But again, you get the idea that, that you think is worth uh, sharing. Well, I'm embarrassed to say it, but like it was, it was, there's like an obvious one, which is I, I just took my first work trip in a really long time to Scotland. I just got back and on the plane back, I watched um, Captain Fantastic, which was a, a, a movie uh, about basically a, a father and his kids and the way in which he raised them. And I'm, I have two young kids now live in California and it, I don't, I just, I, I, n- I never cry at anything. Like I don't cry ever, except maybe when like Frodo told Sam to leave in, in Lord of the Rings, <laughs> like that, that really hit me. And then, but I was just like, I just, I was like really a mess uh, watching Captain Fantastic. Uh, and mainly it was because of uh, just sort of the, um, this is sort of related, but the idea of, and I'll try to relate it, but the idea of, um, I'm related to our conversation, but the idea of just being generous and kind to the people around you. Uh, and I think that if, uh, if, if like, you could, if you could start the day with that feeling of just like, of being generous and kind to the people around you, 
you'd find a lot more people paying attention to to, to Earth right now. Um, and that really got sappy quick. But anyway, there was that was like a very powerful thing that I had watched, listened to, or read. Uh, it's I, it's, it's one of my now. favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And knowing that it's it it has become the the Earthwise <laughs> moment for for Dan is, is <laughs> makes it even better. Yeah. Um, Dan, th thank you very much for this conversation. Uh, it, it it was a lot of fun. Um, thank you very much for for spending some of your precious time with me. Um, this was a wonderful conversation. No, oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you.